Raka. Raka. It even sounds bad, doesn't it? Raka. Matthew 5.22 is the only passage in the Bible where the term Raka is used. It comes from the Aramaic term Riga. And it was, is, in the first century, Palestine, a derogatory expression, meaning empty-headed, insinuating a person's stupidity or their inferiority. It was a bad word then, still is now, and it has a pivot point in today's readings, which began with, you have heard it was said to those of ancient times. Old Testament reference. You have heard it was said to those of ancient times. And Jesus says, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. So for those gathered, that was pretty good news. They were probably all standing around saying, okay, I haven't murdered anybody, I'm good. I'm in good shape here. And then here it comes. But I say to you, New Testament, I, Jesus, say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you're gonna be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, Raka, Moros, you fool, you will be liable to Gehenna, the fires of hell. Okay. A minute or two here. Pretty much nobody in those times did what Jesus just did. Rabbis didn't do it. Scribes didn't do it. Nobody ever contrasted his own or her own announcements with that which God said in the Torah. You have heard it said, Old Testament, but I say to you, New Testament, contrast with the Old Testament, there is something going on here. And the folks around must have been thinking, <clears throat> oh, really, Jesus? What is going on here? The truth is, this fact was, is so unique in all of the Bible, all of the scripture writings, that those who study it say that its uniqueness affirms pretty strongly that it was spoken by Jesus because it is such an outlier to anything else in the rest of the Bible. But this was in fact something he said. But you mean if I call somebody a fool, I am condemned to the ultimate judgment? What is going on here? Any ideas? What do you think is going on here? Why?
it uh, seems as if in the Old Testament, um, the, the impetus for the action is other. Um, and for the New Testament, with Jesus, he assumed, um, he assumed the action himself, made it personal. Carolyn said that in the Old Testament, the action was towards the other. Jesus, in the New Testament, makes it personal, his own. Any other thoughts? You may not all be guilty of committing murder, we can all be pretty rotten to each other. <laughs> we may not all be guilty of committing murder, but we all can be rotten to one another. Well, yeah. And I think another piece to remember here is that this first century Palestine was a time where it was a shame and honor time. In other words, most people had nothing to trade except for their honor. And so if you took that away, if you shamed them, if you called them Raka, Moros, whatever name you chose, if you did that, you were taking away their honor, and in that society, you left them pretty much without anything to trade or to stand on, and in effect, at least according to Jesus, was tantamount to murder. You took away their very being from others. You know, think about that for a second. When Jesus was taken into the garden, or taken from the garden, the whole purpose of everything that followed was to humiliate him, to take away his honor. He was dragged into prison. The treatment in public, he was dragged into prison. The treatment under Pontius Pilate, the ridicule, being forced to carry his own cross. It was take away this one's honor, take away their power, take away everything so they have nothing left and then let's just to make sure execute him in public once and for all we will wipe this out the intention was to make Jesus Moros the fool little Jesus probably was called weak Jesus coward lock him up Crucify him, lock him up, rock up, fool, diminish, demoralize, dehumanize. Stirs up a lot of feelings, then and now. So this name-calling stuff, this coming out of the heart with that kind of stuff, that attempt to demoralize, dehumanize, belittle, that character assassination, as much as we know the impact it has in our society today was even more powerful in society then. So powerful that it didn't figuratively lead to crucifixion. It literally led to execution. And the hatred that precedes name calling and insult is the same hatred according to Jesus, that causes murder. Because it reflects 
the hatred of the heart. It's pretty strong stuff. Now, I have called some people names in my life. I really don't do it too much anymore, I'm happy to say. I was trying to think of the last time I called somebody a name, and I remembered that I caught myself, so that's a good sign. But I don't think I ever had hatred in my heart, even when I might have done it. But I had to really think about that. If I'm calling somebody a name, I'm out to belittle them, make fun of them. I don't know. There's probably a little bit of that in the heart that's not too shiny and bright. But in the course of this last politi of this political climate of the last 18 months, the prelude to it, the debates, the election, the inauguration, and the outcome, it seems that disparagement and shame has overwhelmed us at times. Our society has been overwhelmed. The media, the hearts of many, to the point where everything and everyone, I think, is under siege thought about that. It's, it's this name calling, this bullying, this diminishment, this, this method of transaction is a siege that has become a temporary norm. I pray it's a temporary norm. It's not refinement. It's not civility. It's not discourse or debate. It's a siege. It's all happening in a virtual ring. And the chant is often, knock them out. Belittle them. Yay! Cheers! Crucify them. Take away their power. It's a strategy that has gone viral and touched an intrinsic weakness in the human condition, I think. Fear. And when that fear gets going, even to the smallest degree, pretty much the normal reaction deep in the hypocamus somewhere is to push it away, to flee, to protect ourselves. Get out of here. You're frightening me. I will shame, distort, and shame you again. I will diminish and shame and marginalize and distort you and shame you even more. I will humiliate you and eviscerate you and your power and your presence and scare the living you-know-what out of you and your colleagues, colleagues and they standing by you so much that I'll scare them that they won't say a peep. They'll just stand by because they're afraid I'm going to turn on them. It's the heart of the deal and the heart is precariously near bereft. Bereft of light and kindness and rational meaning and sensitivity. It is in some the intent to character assassinate anyone or anything that gets in the way. It is a slaying of ethics and ethos, civility and collaboration, wisdom and courage. And it's spreading sometimes, I think. We say that the a prophet's medal is figured out years after the prophet says what the prophet said, whether it came true or not. And it seems that these pronouncements of Jesus, that using words to call people names to belittle them, is in fact on the mark. 
And you know, it's easy to say, well, it sort of happened. I don't know. It, it just sort of, it's like something fell off the shelf and crashed on the floor and broke. No, it didn't. It didn't just fall. We broke it. We broke it. We broke what was before to the shards that we're dealing with now. Not us personally. Not places like this personally. Or even corporately. But as a nation, somewhere, somehow, we lost track. We missed the powers that were rising up against the first black president. A lot of it because of race. Until race rose up. We let the Voting Rights Act be hollowed because we didn't believe anyone would ever do that. Nobody's gonna do that. We missed the resistance towards those immigrants and refugees who never, ever wanted immigration reform. Those in charge, so many never wanted immigration reform. They wanted a broken system to make matters worse, to elicit the response we are seeing now. Nobody would ever do that. We miss the hard lines in the coal mines and those who prosper from trading a green earth for hard green cash at the expense of others. We miss the last gasp of those waiting, willing to do anything to unleash whatever forces they could find in religious freedom, initiatives, and other things against the queer or the LGBT community. We miss the blindness of those with congressional health care plans among the best in the world willing to take health care plans from others. They would never do that. And we witnessed mistakes, among them a loose series of comments about taking the oil that puts our service members' motives in question, if not their lives in jeopardy. No one would ever say something like that. Listen, the votes are done. It's no longer about that. We've said this before. It's about what are we going to do to help those people who need help as this community that comes together. And we missed a lot of things, but not everything. And not here. And not in other informed congregations. The moral arc, the, 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 the moral arc of the universe still bends toward justice. But it's not going to be achieved by shaming or name-calling or hatred Ain't gonna do it. I think that our grabbing onto that ark and pulling it down onto us in all the ways we can into a time of justice will come with a certain amount of anger. You can't help it. I can't help it. I kept wanting to write things and say, well, I'm not angry. Guess what? I get angry. It's, it's a natural human response. But for us, it has to be an anger that is a motivation for compassion and love. Compassion and love have to come out of that, whatever it is that makes us go, oh, this, we can't let this happen. A righteous anger of love and compassion. A refusal to accept conditions as they are. An anger of justice and love and compassion that comes from feeling the hurt that is caused in our own lives or as we watch others be harmed in theirs. The kind of anger, the human emotion that wells up not to hurt others in response to shame or imprison them 
but to change the institutions, the injustice, and the abuse, because to do otherwise is to be complicit. It is the anger that turns over tables in a temple. It is the anger that challenges the hypocrisy or the ambivalence of the religious organizations and the councils of leadership or even the authority of the state over matters of God and faith in our lives. It is all those things met with a response of love and justice and compassion and guess what? All of these things don't have a chance against that. Not a chance. And there is a turnaround here, I think. It's coming from many, many directions. It's edgy, and there's some of this anger that's not quite figured out yet. But there is, thankfully, not a great deal of violence. Anyone who went through the Women's March and participated in the Women's March, everyone who I have spoken with who has been a part of that, they come back saying, the spirit, right, was amazing. The, the compassion of people, the, the, it was uplifting. It wasn't this dark sort of vision of things. Jesus' words about this Raka and Moros were to the community of his followers. He was telling his followers that if you are going to be part of this, your life is going to be different. Your actions are going to be different. Your heart is going to be different. Your fears are going to be different. Your joy is going to be beyond any expectation you may have. And many have since heard this and embraced it among this community here. Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, Henry David Thoreau, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Vaclav Hamel and more, they heard it, we've heard it. And in going forward with the movements of this congregation into the future to witness our membership in this community, as a community of followers, decisions will need to be made intentionally and faithfully about continuing the tradition that lives here, that changes the world, not by name calling, but with love and justice and hoping that it catches fire for others. Our social action committee had its first steering meeting yesterday. And there'll be more coming about that toward everybody, for everybody to read. More about that later. But one of the comments that was made was, we have to make sure that all of these things we do, people know where we are coming from. Who Seville Congregational United Church of Christ is and what our biblical rooting is in these things we are doing because as a faith community, this is what makes us different. This is what makes us leaders. This is what it means to be followers. And there's a bit more. <laughs> Inherent in all of this, is forgiveness and pardon. 
So if you are leaving your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, first be reconciled to your brother or sister and then bring your gift to the altar. As I wrote this, I thought, this is the thinnest ground of all for me standing before you here this morning. I can't tell you what to do or how to forgive. I don't have your experiences. I have mine. And I will share that through my own experiences, the forgiveness and pardon is hard. Over the last few decades, and I, and I am old enough to say decades, I think that's good news. Over the last few decades, I have learned a way to grow that has included the growth from saying it fell to I dropped it. I have carefully paid attention to the harms that I might have done to others in my life. Some who I've actually thought did a great deal more harm to me. I've paid attention to those who I thought I may have caused harm to occur because of my behavior. And I have done my very best ability to make amends, acknowledging my role in what happened and willingness to make those amends as best as I could. For me, there has always been something about resentments that have fouled up my heart. That at Raqqa, It's not that I haven't been able to be loving or kind, but it limited love and kindness in a way that I only came to know after I did some of the work. There is a new freedom and there is a new happiness when I am right with others. Even when my offers of trying to be right with others are rejected because I was willing and I forgave, even when I wasn't always forgiven in return. It's been a long time since I've crossed the street to avoid somebody coming my way. Some of us refer to it as taking the zig out of the zag. But that's the point. And I think that's the point of Jesus' message. I need to be on good and clear terms as best as I can, working toward forgiveness and freedom from resentment to be able to approach anyone or be in anyone's company without raka or moros on my lips or in my heart. It is a process for me, really. And we are all in this process of relationship with one another from individuals to congregations and to institutions, and it is always hard, and it is messy. And there is evidence today, I think, that easy is sometimes overrated. This anger that practices an approach of love and compassion, whether in our personal lives or our lives in the world, quickly changes, it transforms. It becomes love, just love, love, love.
And the name on our, on our lips goes from Raqqa to friend, to sister, and to brother. And the river is indeed wide to cross. It is a distance to travel. But when we travel with one another in love, there is no distance too great to cross. And I know if I'll only be true to this glorious quest, that my heart will lie peaceful and calm, as will this world. It's our choice, just as it always has been. Amen.